I want to begin this morning by asking you to do something maybe not very pleasant. Imagine sitting down with someone who doesn't like you very much. Wait a second, that might be more than some of you can handle. If need be, imagine me sitting down with someone who doesn't like me very much. Maybe you can imagine that a little easier without being triggered. It was just Thanksgiving, you know. Imagine sitting down with someone who doesn't like you very much, or me, and you defending yourself and saying something along the lines of, but I know what the will of God is for the whole world. They might think, you're crazy. They might think you're arrogant. They might think you're delusional. But the reality is, if you are a Christian, that book you hold in your lap or on your phone, that book you hold does in fact indicate that you as a Christian know God's will for, and I mean the will of God, for the whole world. Now maybe we as Christians aren't very good at articulating that, and maybe we don't very do a very good job of doing so in a thoughtful way sometimes, but the reality is we know God's will. We know God's, let's call it His cosmic will. For, for everything under the sun, we know God's will. And we find an example in the Bible of the Apostle Paul not sitting down, but engaging people who really don't like him. And his response ultimately is, but I know the will of God for the whole world. And so I think we're going to find a great example today of hopefully not how to get people to not like us, but when people don't like us, especially for religious reasons, hopefully, hopefully we haven't earned it because of our bad attitude or lack of tact, but we have to stick to the script. We have to know that we know that we know based upon biblical revelation that we do in fact know the will of God for the very people who either like us or don't like us. And it's not because we're arrogant. In fact, it would be arrogant to pretend like we don't know if we do know. And we're going to find a great example in the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts, where the apostle Paul, under arrest, standing before people who really don't like him, gives an amazing defense, and it centers around one particular thing. It's right in the middle of Acts 22, and that is that he, in fact, knows the will of God for the whole world, and it has everything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the book of Acts, studying the book of Acts as a church. If you're just joining us, I say this about every week. Welcome. Glad you're here. The water's warm. Come right in. Uh, it's a great study, the book of Acts. It's all about actions. It's all about the acts of the early church, the apostles, those officially designate, designated by Jesus to at least initially launch the gospel and its progress. 
uh, in chapter 22, we're getting toward the end. The apostle Paul uh, is heading for Rome. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. He's wanting to get to Rome. Uh, he's not going to have to pay for it himself. He's not going to have to fundraise. Uh, the Roman government's going to pay for his trip to get there. But he wants to get the gospel to Rome because if it gets to Rome, in effect, it'll get to the ends of the earth. Because of the significance of Rome and the hub that Rome was, it's going to now reach the masses, if you will. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, we have Jesus, after his resurrection, still on earth, still walking the earth post-resurrection. And he gives the commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to his apostles and their teams, if you will, because it's not only the apostles. And then we see the gospel going to the Jews, specifically through the apostle Peter, though he preaches the gospel to Gentiles as well. Then we see the baton, if you will, pass to the apostle Paul, who's called the gospel to the, or excuse me, he's not called the gospel. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, though he preaches to the Jews also, all designed to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and eventually to get us where we are now hearing the gospel ourselves, believing the good news about salvation in Christ, and yes, indeed, continuing to proclaim the good news till Christ returns. So Acts 22 is where we are right now. I know I just said that. And it's Paul being tried because he's been arrested, and here he is in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 1, we have about 30 verses to go. We'll slow down in the middle. Verse 1 says, Brothers and fathers respectfully as a Jew before fellow Jews in Jerusalem. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense. Hear the apologia is the Greek word where we get apologetics, right? Which means a defense of the faith. Listen to my apologetics. Listen to my defense that I now make before you. Verse 2 says, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language... And we tend to think, well, that must be Hebrew because most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But actually, at this particular point in time, the Jews are speaking Aramaic. And so the Hebrew language then of the day is actually Aramaic. So it's probably Aramaic, not Hebrew. Strange, I know. They became even more quiet. So they're going to pay attention. He's speaking in their language. And it says then, and he said, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. So that's just to the northwest of then Israel, modern Turkey. Uh, Actually, as an extra biblical aside, that's the first scene where Mark, Anthony, and Cleopatra meet. But that has nothing to do with the Bible. You didn't need to come here to learn that. Uh, Real place, though. But brought up in this city, that would be this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. What's he getting at? What's the flavor of what he's saying? I'm one of you, and not only am I one of you, I'm respecting you. I respect our heritage. I respect our history. I'm not a Johnny-come-lately. I'm not a rogue outsider who just showed up and started declaring things. Oh, no. In fact, I actually was instructed formally under the tutelage, under the discipleship, under the mentorship of a man named Gamaliel, who was famous. We learned about him in chapter 5. He's a famous Pharisee, well-known among the Jews. So he's name-dropping. He was a popular Bible teacher of the day. 
They would have known who he was, and so he's giving them his resume. The things I'm saying are not because I just, you know, fell out of a tree. No, I'm one of you. I've had the same kind of background as you have had, and he's arguing, he's giving his defense, his apologetic, that I'm one of you, and so please listen to what I have to say. I'm not insane, I'm not crazy, I'm not a radical, I'm not a newcomer, and I'm zealous. I'm a Bible guy. If they would have said things back then like they say today, he would have said, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's actually not even a good way to say it. He'd say, that's not a good way to say it. The Bible says it, therefore, that settles it. He's that kind of guy. And he's trying to argue that he's that kind of guy. And here's a sampling of just how zealous he was. Verse 4, I persecuted this way. Christians were originally called the way because they followed Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. So this isn't the first time we've seen Christians and Christianity referred to as the way. I persecuted this way. Christians, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. We learned about this in chapter 9, verse 2, where he rehearsed these very same things. He's so zealous, he's so passionate, and he thinks these Christians are so dead wrong that he's not going to just go after the leaders, he's going to go after their families. Now, to us, that sounds bad and sinister, and to the Apostle Paul, in his own heart of hearts now, it sounds bad and sinister. But he's saying, I, I, I was just like you guys. I understand. And I wasn't half in. I was all in. Keep going if you would. Verse 5. As the high priest and the whole council of elders, these Jewish leaders, can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers. And I journeyed toward Damascus. So from Jerusalem to Damascus, like a, almost 200 miles. I was so passionate and so committed. I was going to track them down, those Christians. It wasn't enough for them to be persecuted and to flee Jerusalem. Let's go get them officially and bring them back and put them on trial. Pretty intense. To take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He has a reputation. He's known for being this kind of person Verse 6 then says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, bright signing sun, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So it must be great if it's about noon and it's brighter than the sun. So something extraordinary, something supernatural, uh, this blinding light, he's emphasizing that. Also, if we're to think in terms of the Old Testament... For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 29, blinding is associated with a covenantal curse from God. And so if we read it in that light, which maybe we should, he thinks he's zealous for God when in fact God is actually bringing some sort of judgment upon him. Then verse 7, let's keep going. If you look there with me, it says, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 8 says, and I answered, who are you, Lord? Who are you? You're obviously greater than I am, so I'm going to call you Lord because you did this to me. 
But even if he doesn't know who he is yet, he acknowledges his greatness, greater than him. Who are you, Lord? Then it says, and he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Jesus means God, uh, God saves, Yahweh saves. He's named Jesus in Matthew 1 because he will save his people from their sins. So I'm, I'm the God saves one. Jesus of Nazareth. Remember John chapter 1, no good thing comes out of Nazareth. And so it's a little bit, not contradictory, but it, it seems odd, right? Because you have the great one coming from the place of humility which is what's true about Jesus. Yeah, something great came out of Nazareth. Wrong side of the tracks. Nowhere, McNowhereville, right? Very small. But you know what? That's how God worked. The Savior of the people from Nazareth. So Jesus is saying, I'm that one. I am that one indeed who you're persecuting. Jesus has ascended, remember? Acts chapter 1. Jesus isn't on planet earth. But the apostle Paul has been persecuting his people and their solidarity with his people and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't go unnoticed when his people are persecuted and Jesus takes it personally, which warms my heart and should warm your heart. It didn't go unnoticed. Verse 9 says, Now those who were with me, Paul says, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So it's a public event. There are eyewitnesses, though they don't comprehend it. Luke loves to record this kind of stuff. The apostle Paul loves to record this kind of stuff or say this kind of stuff in his defense. This didn't happen in my heart. This didn't happen because I had something strange for dinner and had bad dreams. No, this happened as a public event. We're talking about real history. They might not have understood it, but they were there and they can attest to these things. Verse 10 says, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So the God who appoints things, who's sovereign, is appointing him to do something, has appointed him to do something. It's the same word that we saw in Acts chapter 13, verse, verse 48, those who were appointed unto eternal life. And here, all that is appointed for you to do. How about verse 11? And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand, by the hand, by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias... A devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Sounds a lot like Paul. He was well, he was, he had a reputation. He was not an anti-law guy. He was a pro-law guy. Uh, Ananias is a faithful Jew in other, in other words. So as Paul's giving his defense to the Jews saying, I have been a faithful Jew and you know what? Who, who I was to go there and meet? Another person who has a good reputation for being a faithful Jew. Notice the con, Let's, let's use the, the fancy theological word. Notice the continuity. The coming of Jesus isn't out of left field falling out of a tree. It was actually part of the unfolding drama of redemption. That's why I'm a faithful Jew and came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And Ananias is in on it. And there are other people in on it as well. It's part of his defense. 
Then it says in verse 13, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. All of that we've seen before. And it's not the last time we're going to see it. We saw it in chapter 9. Now we're seeing it here, rehearsing how God worked in his life. And now we come to what's a key verse in the whole chapter. I would submit to you it's probably the key verse in the chapter. It's certainly where we're going to put some focus. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our fathers, so this is a connection to the past, not out of nowhere, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. So maybe let's look at that again, right? So notice, he's been appointed to do what? There, there are three statements there that start with the word two. To know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. And so let's get comfortable for a few minutes and consider this reality. It's a super important biblical reality. It'll help you to understand the Old Testament. It'll help you to understand the New Testament. It'll help you to understand the plan and purposes of God. It'll help you understand so much. Some of this is review for some of you. Others of you will probably have never heard this before. It's not complicated. It's not sophisticated, but it's really important. He has been appointed. It's translated in chapter 10, verse 41, as chosen because they're interchangeable. This is the word for chosen. Chosen beforehand. This is a word for appointed beforehand. I looked it up. (laughs) Just to be sure. This is that word. It's significant. God chooses to do things beforehand. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a will. God has a decree. Things are not just happening because God is reacting the best way he can. No, it's not that kind of idea. And this makes some people uncomfortable. It's what makes me comfortable. Appointed. So he says here, the God of our fathers appointed you. Okay. Divine appointment, unique Calling chose him for a specific mission at a specific time to do three things. First of all, to know his will. God chose you beforehand to know his will. And clearly he doesn't mean his will in a small kind of way, you know, for uh, what we should have for dinner. Or where we should go on vacation. Or maybe something more important, you know, who you should marry. It's the grandest of all grandeur. To know his will. He's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to talk about redemption. He's going to talk about salvation. To know his will regarding that. To know his will for the ages. To know his, I'm going to make up, make up a statement here, but you'll get the idea. To make up his cosmic will. Right? They will affect all time, all people. God chose you beforehand to know His will. His will regarding His Son. This is climactic. This is massive. Maybe a couple of cross-reference passages that are really important. 
I won't go slow, I'll go fast, but you might want to jot them down. This is Ephesians 1 kind of talk. Ephesians 1 says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will. Same concept. Making known, revealing to us the mystery of His will. Then it says, how about this in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, His will set forth in Christ, the divine purpose is set forth in Christ. Verse 10 says of Ephesians 1, as a plan for the fullness of time, how about this, to unite all things, so it's cosmic, in Him, He's central, things in heaven and things on earth. Central to everything is Christ. Old Testament anticipating, looking forward to Christ bringing fulfillment. Now we are enjoying the benefits. Yes, looking back and looking forward to his return. But it's a huge big deal when Paul was told by Ananias, you've been chosen by God uniquely to know his will, his cosmic will, his otherwise mysterious will, his otherwise unknown will. It's the will of God. To know that, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 is another great important text. It says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the author of Hebrews is talking about how God has given special revelation and he's given us the Old Testament and he's given us the prophets and he's given us so many good things, but they're all designed to give us this final, anticipate this final climactic revelation, if you will, because then it goes on to say in verse two, Hebrews one, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The climactic point of all history is the Son. The will of God is redemption in the Son, is what he's saying. It's, it's an extraordinary reality. This is why I said to you earlier, if you're a Christian, you know the will of God. In the cosmic sense. You, you know that it has everything to do with Christ. You, you know that all of human history points to him, anticipates him, and when he comes, even if people didn't know they were waiting for him, they were waiting for him. He's the way to have redemption. He's the way, the way to have reconciliation. He is actually key to making all things new one day. Read Romans chapter 8. All of the problems in our world can never be solved ultimately apart from him. At his return, read Romans chapter 8. The center of everything ends up being Christ. As you might be able to tell, I get excited about this. There are a lot of things I don't know, but I know this to be true. And I know this to matter more than anything else. The Apostle Paul appointed uniquely and uniquely to go to the Gentiles, but right now he's before the Jews, being accused of being anti-Jewish. And he's like... Are you kidding me? He probably didn't do that unless it was in Hebrew or Aramaic. (laughs) Anti-Jewish. Are you crazy? This is about as Jewish as you get. But it's not only for the Jews is what's happening here. To affirm and see Jesus as the Messiah is not to oppose God's will. It's to see God's will for what it actually is. Okay, there's a second factor here, right? So first of all, appointed, chosen beforehand, 
to know God's will, but then to see the righteous one. Also in verse 14, to see the righteous one. What a title. I like it to, to, to translate. Trans, man, I get so excited. can't talk. The righteous one, at least in the translation I'm using today, it's capitalized. We, we add capitalization where we think it's appropriate is how this rolls. Um, we don't, but Bible translators do. And how fitting. Clearly, it should be capitalized. The righteous one. The, what a great title for Jesus. I, I would imagine that a lot of you think it's a great title for Jesus, even if you don't know what it means. Because it sure sounds good. The righteous one. To see the will of God. And the will of God has to do with the righteous one. But I think it's probably better than we even know once we know some more things about it. How about this? There has never, ever, 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 ever been one who has the title or deserves the title, the righteous one. There's never been before Jesus one who deserves the title, the righteous one. That's important. What does it mean to be righteous? Most Christians I've met don't know what it means to be righteous. And yet the Old Testament talks about righteous so much. And the New Testament talks about righteous so much. When you're learning a new language, oftentimes what they do is they help you to learn vocabulary that's used most often, right? Because it gives you more bang for your buck. It's a good way to learn a new language. Learn the words that are used most commonly and you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll hit the ground running. Well, the Bible uses righteous so much that if you want to be a good Bible student, you should probably know what it means, right? It'll help you to hit the ground running. And there's no question about it that the word righteous has to do with law, okay? If you are righteous, you are an upholder of God's law. You adhere to God's requirements, if you will, okay? There's no question about that. I think a long time ago, I looked it up in nine Greek dictionaries and Hebrew dictionaries. We're not going to rehearse all of that. Righteous means obedience to God's law. And we know Jesus boiled down God's law clearly when he was on earth to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you were perfectly righteous, it would mean you perfectly love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. There's never, ever, 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 you get the idea, been someone who deserves the title, the righteous one. Remember Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is how many righteous? None righteous. No, not even one. You see how this really pays off to understand this in the Bible. Oh, there's never been one who is the righteous one. In fact, there's never been one who is righteous. Well, now we're going to nuance because we're good Bible readers and Bible students. We're going to say, well, maybe there's people who are relatively righteous because not everybody's as bad as some other people. But ultimate righteousness, there's never been a person, this is why we're called sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one who's ever walked planet earth has loved God perfectly, loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. It's not ever happened. But that's God's requirement. And this means we're in a lot of trouble. Okay. This is ABC's 123's I Know. But wow, if we can get this figured out, we would be much better Bible readers and we'd be much better missionaries and we would understand the gospel much better and we would understand Jesus much better because to know the will of God is to see that Jesus is, Jesus of Nazareth is the righteous one. 
He is not only a righteous one, he is the righteous one in part, get this, because he represents everyone who would ever trust in him. He's a unique righteous one. He is the righteous one because he's the savior. Because if you believe in him, if you trust in him, then his perfect obedience to loving God and loving neighbor is given to you as a gift. So now when Pat sees, who should I pick on? Oh, I won't do it. I'm looking at people in purple, but I won't do it, John. <laughs> when, when God sees John Schmoll, the guy in purple, who you can't miss, <laughs> he sees John Schmoll as if John had perfectly, personally, and perpetually loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. I like John a lot, but I'll bet his wife, Nicole, would be here to say, it's not true. But if he trusts in Christ, as he has, the righteous one has given him righteousness, a righteous standing. It's absolutely amazing to consider. This is why we have assurance of salvation. We're, we're relying upon the righteousness of another, not ourselves, not our own. Jesus Christ, he is the righteous one. This is what Stephen got stoned for preaching in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. He preaches the same thing. This is Acts 7, 52. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Oh, the coming of the Messiah. He's going to be the righteous one. And that comes from the Old Testament from Isaiah 53. Everyone's favorite Old Testament passage. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, there it is, my servant make many to be accounted righteous. Right? You're credited with his righteousness. But he's the righteous one and he shall bear their iniquities. And we're not going to take the time to go there, but we can go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The righteous for the unrighteous. He's the substitute. 1 John chapter 2 says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We, we, we have to own this and understand this or we really won't understand the cosmic will of God. The cosmic will of God is that Jesus is the righteous one. And so we rely upon him and his works, not our works. This is why we say salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, plus or minus nothing. Paul has been chosen beforehand as an apostle to know the will of God. And how about this? This is the will of God. So today, when we run into each other at lunch or whatever, and I say, pastoral pop quiz, what does it mean to be righteous? And you're going to go, uh, no, you're not. You're going to say, obeys God's law, adhere to God's law. There aren't any, but he is the righteous one. That's why we tell people, trust in Jesus and God will accept you. And it's not, I hope he does. No, he will. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous What's not to like about this? Well, what's not to like about it is it might give people assurance. <laughs> what's not to like about this is some people are going to say, well, that means you're against God's law. Remember in chapter 21, that's what they accuse Paul of being is against the law. No, no, he's going to make it clear. He's not against the law. He's for the law. 
but he's for a law keeper in Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. Fulfillment. We're not anti-God's law, anti-God's old covenant even. We're pro, but there's one who comes and he meets the obligation that Pat Abendroth can't meet. Or you. The will of God. What could be more important than this? He's not anti-temple. He's pro-greater temple. He's not anti-Jewish. He's pro-Jesus as the Messiah of Jews and Gentiles as well. Well, we better move on to that third aspect lest we never run into each other at lunch where I can give you the pastoral pop quiz. He also says, relatedly, also in verse 14, there was this appointment, this choosing beforehand, and to hear a voice from his mouth. So he was also appointed to hear a voice from his mouth. He speaks because, how about this, he's not dead. Jesus was crucified, but he speaks because he's raised from the dead. He speaks because he's not dead, but raised. He speaks because he explains the meaning of his actions. He speaks because he calls sinners to himself for hope. He speaks because he commissions those who belong to him to preach the good news like Paul. He was also chosen beforehand to hear the voice of Jesus who would commission him. He was appointed, chosen to uniquely hear the voice of Jesus. Well, right here in my notes, I have, it just says, breath. Because <sighs> I knew it was going to be exciting. If we can't get excited about the things we've been talking about, we must not have a spiritual pulse. Then, to hear his voice, how about verse 15? To hear his voice, for you will be a witness for him to everyone, so not only to the Jews, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's why Ananias tells him, you will be a witness, literally the word martyr, which might be interesting, to every one of you, or to every one of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16 says, and now why do you wait? This is a call to action. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Grammatically, that's probably how it should read based upon my reading of people who know Greek grammar better than I do. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Now, one symbolizes the other, but clearly Ananias is not preaching justification by baptism because that would contradict what Paul's message is going to be. Those of you who are Greek geeks, it's an adverbial participle, and it's instrumental here. Let's go to verse 17. Verse 17 says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that's not what an anti-Semite does. He goes back to the temple. It hasn't been destroyed yet. It's not 80, 70 yet. So he goes back to the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So, who's against God's will? Well, Paul has been given God's will, and he goes back to Jerusalem at that phase in history, and they're not going to accept the gospel that comes from Jesus. They're not going to accept God's will. Okay, verse 19. You guys doing okay? You look like you're doing okay. I'm just so glad you come here on a Sunday morning. It would be so weird if it was just like my two sons and I today. I say it that way because I would do this no matter what. 
Because once you see the goodness of God in Christ Jesus, the righteous one, I still have problems in my life and I still have things I have to deal with in life. But it puts everything else in perspective. And it can help me face tomorrow because I know my biggest problem has been solved. I can't help but preach with passion and boldness and love in my heart, wanting so desperately if I could possibly help you to understand this. I I, I would do just about anything. 19 says, And I said, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, and ever so quickly, I'm just going to put a finger there because back in verse 15, it says, for you will be a witness. So Paul is called a witness and now he's calling Stephen, your witness probably meant to be observed because now all of a sudden we are going to see that the generic use of the word martyr becomes a literal use of the word martyr because what happened to Stephen is going to happen to the Apostle Paul in time. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And we did see that earlier in the book of Acts. Then verse 21 says, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And now the the camera turns to the present. So Paul has been giving this rehearsal of what happened in his life in the past as his defense, as his testimony. But now we're brought up to current day, Acts 22. Notice what it says in verse 22. Up to this word. What's the word? It's the G word. Right? They were still listening. They were, okay, 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 until he said the G word. Gentile. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth where he should not be allowed to live. Gentiles, no! They're unclean. They're filthy. God doesn't like them. God's against them. We're the Jews. And if you're just new to the Bible, basically in the first century, uh, in the general period that we're talking about, there are Jews and there are non-Jews, and those are the only kind of people. So there's only one race, the human race. And religiously speaking, at this point in time, there are the Jews and there are the non-Jews. So the Romans are the non-Jews. The tree worshipers are the the non-Jews. Anyone and everyone else who's not a Jew is a Gentile. Or also, in other words, in the New Testament and Old, the nations. So you've got the nation of Israel and then you have the other nations, the Gentile nations. And so again, those are good things to know. It'll help you read your Bible better. They're known as the unclean ones. They're the unwelcome ones. They've not come to believe in Yahweh, the one true and living God. Okay, they're they're into paganism. But here, when Paul says, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, that's that's horrific. That's That's terrible in their ears. This man should be executed. He shouldn't be allowed to live because after all, we Jewish people, if you will... We are the proud sons and daughters of Father Abraham had many sons, right? They probably didn't sing that song back then, but some of you did when you were growing up as a little kid. 
We're, we're, we're the children of Abraham. The nations, the Gentiles, they deserve to go to hell. There's no hope for them. But we are the faithful people of Israel, which is, which is not a good look, right? That's not a very honest look. It's not a very honest reading of the Old Testament either. Because upon closer look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise, if you were to go to Genesis 17, for example, we won't do it right now. The Apostle Paul for sure goes there in Romans 4. Listen to what he says. For the promise to Abraham, this is Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. He's the father of many nations. It was always there to begin with. And we forget sometimes. They certainly had forgotten. It was always built in the whole plan of redemption. Yes, a unique time for the nation of Israel, but it was always there from the very beginning, even stated in the Abrahamic promise. To the nations too. And now that time has come. The will of God is being revealed. The will of God. That climactic will, the climactic will of God where it's all coming to fruition and it's being fulfilled. And the apostle Paul is not anti-Jewish. He's sticking to the script, but they've forgotten. They claim to be Bible people, but they're not really Bible people. 23 says, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune, the Roman official, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. How about that for an examination? <sighs> examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So the, the Roman official needs to, doesn't understand all that's going on, maybe because it's in Aramaic, and what in the world is going on. He's in charge of keeping the peace, and so let's get to the bottom of this. Let's examine him and try to figure out what's happening. Examination by flogging. The word that's used is actually used for a whip, commonly wooden handle. Leather tassels, if that's the right word for it. I'm not a whip expert. Um, sometimes wire. Uh, in the leather tied bones. Pieces of lead, sharp objects, massive infliction may lead to death. They did this, they did this to Jesus. Severe. Verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, Roman soldier, who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a, oh, here you go, Roman citizen? And uncondemned? Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are, you, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Uh-oh. Hold on. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. 28 says the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. Plot thickens. 29. So those who were about to examine him, remember by flogging, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also, also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen. Commentators even think that it was 
fairly customary to carry actual papers. Did he show them or not? I don't know. Maybe so. And that he had bound him. Ah, membership has its privileges and so does citizenship here. Verse 30 says, we're going to wrap this up, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Got to get to the bottom of this. We need to understand. So now let's call, now let's call the Jewish officials. Plot thickens. And as the plot thickens, he's getting one step closer to going to Rome, which is where he wants to go to begin with for the progress of the gospel. He's doing this without fear. He's doing this with boldness. And he's doing this, how about, I'm going to remind you, because he knows the will of God. He knows the center of all history. He knows that God is the God of decrees and we're not just cycling over and over again. History is going somewhere. It has gone somewhere and it's going ultimately to Christ's return and he's the resurrected one. And so he's bold. And so he is bold. And I want you to know and to remind you while you're not an apostle and I'm not an apostle, you had to see the risen Christ on earth to be qualified to be an apostle. If you're a Christian, you know the will of God too. And you know history is going somewhere. So you can be thoughtfully bold, if you will, in helping people to understand the righteous one. It all centers around him. And if his righteousness is credited to you by faith, read Romans chapter 4. You, Romans chapter 5, have peace with God. And it can't be taken away. Romans 8, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities and on and on the list goes to make the point nothing can take the peace away. You can have assurance and you can help other people understand how to have assurance too. Jesus is the righteous one on behalf of everyone who would ever believe because he came to save his people from their sins. Be bold, folks. Be bold. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in this world. Sometimes it looks like you're not caring at all, like you're not engaged, but we know in actuality you are. And so please remind us of these things. Remind us that we are here for a purpose and a reason, maybe many purposes and many reasons, but ultimately that we can know what is true about Christ and we can be good ambassadors as men and women and boys and girls to be able to tell people about the gift of salvation in Christ, the righteous one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.